child of the night That's Anna A passing delight That's Anna A will-o'-the-wisp A delicate breeze Welcome to the 10th episode of Sass Mouth Dame's podcast. Today I'm talking about Eartha Kitt and Anna Lucasta from 1958, a remake of the 1949 production starring Paulette Goddard. You can watch it on YouTube. The picture is also one of the few from the period with an all-African-American cast, which shows how many great performances audience missed because of Jim Crow and institutionalized racism in Hollywood and America at large. Everyone in this cast gives a faultless performance, but Eartha Kitt, with the face of a pre-code angel, summons an intensity that we haven't seen since Barbara Stanwyck and Babyface from 1933. Eartha Kitt shares Stanwyck's ability to disrupt an otherwise placid exterior by unleashing a torrent of emotion that strikes the viewer with laser-grade intensity. Lily Powers and Anna Lucasta share the same blasé attitude to what life holds in store for them as sex workers, thanks to their fathers, until suddenly they rouse, their eyes blazing with brimstone levels of indignation. A slim jersey pencil skirt emphasizes how pared down Anna's life is with nothing to spare. She has no baggage or possessions and scrapes up her daily survival through small increments of the next drink, the next John, and the next place she can crash for the night. Can Anna get just a few moments of peace without having to face what men want? She deals with an endless barrage of demands from every man she encounters, except Noah the bartender, played by Alvin Childress. He's the only man who extends kindness without a hidden agenda. When Anna enters his pub on a gloomy night, saying, The streets are like graveyards, the house is like tombstones, Eartha Kitt's voice sounds as lonesome as an owl hooting in the woods. Anna notes everything slowed down to a stop. She nearly shivers as though someone walked across her own grave. Noah replies, when your train's going too fast, God puts the brakes on to give you time to think. Anna turns petulant. I don't want to think. I want to drink. In her sing-songy manner, she clings to the only reliable form of escapism she has in her waterfront hellscape. Anna floats on a stream of gin when she waits each night for a ship to come in. Not her ship, a ship, any ship. Not a minute passes after she's seated at the bar before some man comes nosing around, looking at Anna as though she were a roast chicken after his five-day fast. Eddie, played by James Edwards, talks too fast to try to put the moves on Anna, making promises you know he can't keep. He's too quick and too eager and smooths it all over as though Anna hasn't heard it before. Eddie pays for a bottle to lure Anna. She warns him, I'm very particular who I drink with. Eddie says he's been watching her for a year. You can see how Hardy works to appear casual with his offer. He runs a club on the other side of town, very exclusive, rich clientele. He bites his fingernails in between baiting his hook. So so hungry is he for Anna. When he spits out the nails, it makes him look like a ravenous wolf tearing at himself in frustration. 
Coolly, Anna interrupts to cut through the sales pitch and asks what he expects from her. What exactly is his proposition? All she has to do is be a hostess, drink with the customers, get them to spend money. Anna keeps her eye on the pool table when she asks Eddie what's in it for him. She just has to be nice to him. I take a little pleasure for myself once in a while. That tears it. Anna will not allow a man to take anything. We see the way Anna uses what little power she has at her disposal to place limitations on the claims men can make on her. When the sleazy club promoter makes grandiose promises in a seductive overture, Anna sees right through him. He wants to install her in a club as a hostess, maybe in a scenario that calls to mind Kay Francis in Mandalay from 1934. Anna's having none of it. She won't give up any of her hard-won freedom. She may have to depend on men for money, but she won't let them boss her around. She decides who she'll spend time with. Eddie attempts to force himself on Anna. Initially, she lets him embrace her, and then she stabs his neck with her lit cigarette. Men often forget that just because a woman may come with a price, she's not for sale. Eddie cries out in pain. He curses her and says she had better change her mind and stop being so particular. Anna snaps that she'd rather pal with rats. Viewers understand that some version of this scene plays out every night of the week, that tiny little Anna must fight at every turn to keep from drowning in men's desires and expectations. Noah calms Anna by pressing sandwiches in her hand and money for coffee. Blanche, a sex worker old enough to be her mother, played by Claire Leba, has stolen the binoculars that a cop had earlier hassled Anna for nicking. Blanche asks, hey Anna, do you think there's a reward for finding lost articles? Anna replies, I'd sure like to be found. And she is, not once, but twice by the end of a long evening. First, Danny enters fresh off a ship, still in his navy blues, with a friend. Danny, played by Sammy Davis Jr., makes a star's entrance with Lester, played by Charles Swain. He picks Anna up and swings her around, while Anna, delighted, still puts the brakes on him by cautioning, Hey, don't handle me like a sack of potatoes. Danny introduces Lester and says, Once you've met Anna, Daddy, you've come up against the main event. Anna chides Danny, further scolding, quit your jazzin'. She's not too interested in Lester until he offers to buy the drinks. Viewers recognize why Danny stands apart for Anna. She enjoys his company with more relish than just another cash transaction. He's cool, as graceful as Anna is elegant. They look well-matched physically, like they belong together. He has vigor and presence. Danny isn't dismissive or judgmental about how Anna allots her time with men. He brings presents, some flashy beads, but then also a wooden figure called Papa, a likeness of an old Haitian god of the sea who's good to sailors. Anna notes wryly that they have something in common. But when the old god appears, it's like he presents a challenge to the god of Abraham. Anna, taking a swig of her gin, looks out the porthole window in the pub and sees her father's face. She freezes into a frightened mask like she glimpsed a ghost. In walks the patriarch, played by Rex Ingram, mild, meek, beseeching Anna to return with him to the family. Danny attempts to give Mr. Lucasta the brush off. It's even rather shocking to see a young black man be openly rude to an elder. It's indelicate. At a loss, Anna looks at the other men in the room. 
Noah points her towards her father, telling her to go with him. Anna sees how undependable the other men are, since Danny made plain he wouldn't marry her, so she returns home with her father. But Anna isn't really welcomed back into the fold because her father regrets casting her out or for simple Christian charity. Only her mother, Teresa, played by Georgia Burke, and a sister-in-law, Katie, played by Isabel Cooley, express any desire for Anna to remain. Under her parents' roof, Anna exchanges the slim wiggle skirt for gingham shirt dresses and circle skirts, so she looks as wholesome as any other girl in the 1950s. When viewers see Anna's family backstory, it blends a familiar tale from the Bible with a dash of Freudian melodrama. Anna's daddy isn't a preacher. He doesn't go to church or seem especially God-fearing. He claimed earlier, I did what the hymn book told me when he cast his daughter out. He sublimated his raw lust for Anna into a biblical-style comeuppance when he tossed her on the street with only $20. It's much easier to call your daughter a sinner than admit you desire her sexually. He hasn't really forgiven her for becoming a beautiful woman. Anna's return was designed by her brother-in-law, Frank, played by Frederick O'Neill, who wants Anna as bait for a southern greenhorn with a fortune in his pocket. Frank uses the spacious craftsman-style family home to run an antique shop, where everything bears a prominent price tag. The commodious front garden has been turned into a bargain basement shop front. The camera captures a sewing machine, floor lamps, simple wooden furniture, a lawn jockey, and a fake bronze bus that sounds like a piggy bank with nickels rolling around inside. He puts up a large billboard reading, Trader Frank, We Buy and Sell Antiques. Everything's for sale to Frank, including his wife's sister, even though she has a dubious past that they intend to bury. When they finally hook the southern bumpkin Rudolph, played by Henry Scott, Frank all but picks his pocket. Invited for dinner, Rudolph attempts to impress Anna with his education and asks her what she did in San Diego. She stalls him, well, I didn't go to college. In the multi-generational Lucasta household, the women are generally generally ignored, insulted, and treated as servants. Anna must recognize that even for respectable women, life amounts to taking care of men's needs. Frank tells his pregnant wife Stella, played by Rosetta Lenoir, I sure did marry beneath me. The Potter Familius tells Rudolph to watch out for the women in the wine. If the one don't get you, the other one will. Joe has become messy during this dinner party, staggering around during Rudolph's visit. Frank roughs up the old man and then excuses Joe's behavior to Rudolph, saying his trouble is he just can't seem to find the bottom of the bottle. Later, during the scene where Anna is out with Rudolph on a date, one of several she's had that we haven't witnessed, everything seems off. Maybe it's because he doesn't know the truth about her past yet, but also because Rudolph appears to be just like any other man Anna knew in San Diego. The scene opens with close-ups of neon signs that beckon dancing, liquor, hotels, and then to the more innocent signs offering ice cream, coffee, and a cafe. When they walk down the street, he makes it all about himself, what he thinks, what he feels. He looks childish when he asks Anna if this was the mambo they danced, that he didn't even know he could do it. They pause for a moment in front of a photographer's shop on a busy street. The windows are stuffed full with domestic scenes, framed pictures of weddings, newborns, family portraits, and businessmen posing for uh, the camera. 
And therefore, the shop sets up a contrast for the paucity of Anna's relationships in the past year and how far removed she has been from this comforting, loving domestic setting. To make matters worse, as they continue to walk down the street, he makes a rude comment about her dress. Sophia Stutz and Virginia Day received credit for wardrobe design, and they chose the perfect dress for Eartha Kitt to wear on this date. She wears a floppy, wide-brim hat that's trimmed with a floating ribbon. Her dress is floral print, has a round neckline, a nipped waist, and a full skirt. Eartha Kitt looks like the picture of dainty femininity. The same kind of frock that Elizabeth Taylor or Grace Kelly might wear on screen. Viewers would not attribute this frock to a lady with a past. It belongs to a woman with a future. When she moves in it, Eartha Kitt swings her shoulders rather than her hips. She's not trying to seduce the college graduate. As sweet and innocent as the dress is, signaling pies cooling on the windowsill rather than seduction under moonlight, Rudolph has to bring sex into it. Not for a minute can Anna be free from the boner parade. Rudolph exclaims, It's a mystery to me how you got yourself into that dress. It looks like you were poured into it. You can see Anna regret that he's no different from other men. Educated men have no more control and lose the run of their senses when they become aroused, just like any other man. She takes it like a blow. Well, it isn't necessary to tell a girl how she fills out a dress, she says. He protests that he would talk that way to his sisters, and she shouldn't take offense. His remark doesn't seem to make it acceptable. Anna looks like she stepped out of a film or a fashion shoot. Anyone would find it crass and tedious. Anna doesn't know what to do when he apologizes, unaccustomed as she is to dealing with men who value her opinion of them, that she backpedals. She says, it's probably just my dirty mind. But if her mind's dirty, men made it thus. At this point, they stop in front of a bookshop. Hanging in the window are glossy 8x12 prints of Hollywood movie stars. Viewers can see Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield, Rock Hudson, and Frank Sinatra. These are the only white faces that appear in the film, but they are larger than life in a sense. The glossies remind us of what society values and the narratives it holds dear about race, beauty, and purity. On one level, the pictures tell us that Eartha Kitt deserves to be up there on the wall. She looks as glamorous as any of the other stars. The glossies show us, though, a racial vacuum that excludes Eartha Kitt and many other talented women of color. Only narrowly, by a few years, did she escape the fate that befell Teresa Harris or Nina Mae McKinney, supremely talented actors who languished in bit roles playing the maid. It also tells viewers that white women in Hollywood don't have to fend off a wolf when they're dressed as summer sweetness incarnate. Or maybe they do, and that's another point. But the star headshots interrupt their intimate moment to remind us as viewers of the larger world they occupy. When they get to a park, Anna confides her family secret. She recalls that she was sitting there with a boy on a bench holding hands. It was a blameless flirtation until her father caught them and made it wicked. He threw $20 at her and chased her out of the house. Nothing could be worse than parents who consign a child to the streets. The framed needlepoint in her parents' bedroom that reads, God is love, underscores the dramatic irony for Anna, 
rather than offer a testament of faith. Her family, her father, they channel Old Testament levels of recrimination to sublimate the obsession he has with her imagined sexual corruption. Both Joe and Danny interrupt Anna's wedding day. Her father brings damnation. Danny augurs a bad fortune for Anna, telling her she's living a lie if she tries to settle for a square. Although it brings tragic consequences, viewers feel relieved to see him, and we find ourselves agreeing with him when he says, You don't belong to one man, baby. You and me, we're real people. Anna, we're the real stuff. Many's the times we set the earth on fire. You stick with me and we'll burn it up. I mean, what does she have to look forward to with Rudolph? To hear him growl for his dinner like Frank or her father? To be a drudge for some man? Tell me you're not thrilled when the scene cuts to a dress shop and she's wiggling out of the shawl collar uh, prim wedding dress for a slender jersey dress with a keyhole neckline and an immaculate drape. Even her gin-induced hallucination or panic attack on the dance floor feels exciting. Anna watches Danny dance the mambo, flashing between dressed in his navy blues and his hipster black suit with a skinny jazz tie. They dance and party and fly high. Danny taps out of money, complaining about the six months' pay he spent in one week. Bored, Anna loses patience. It's not fashionable to run out of money in this town, Danny. You're out of style. It's the worst thing she could have said to him. They fight and she smacks him. Danny suddenly treats her like a tramp and leaves. Blanche appears to offer Anna a way out. Blanche looks bedraggled and desperate. She's wearing a fur stole that looks like coyote roadkill rather than fox or pine marten. The animal has a pained expression on its face. She suggests that Anna need only provide an alibi with the police for the creepy club manager, and she'll be rewarded with money and that hostess position in the club. And maybe she could also put in a good word for Blanche. Anna's life seems to be traveling in ever smaller circles. Eartha Kitt delivers a searing performance built on a commanding emotional spectrum. She embodies a sense of regal reserve and aloneness and privacy that serves as a retreat from when men do their worst. She's cynical, but she's also funny, devastated, hopeful, and yearning for love. When tears fall on her cheeks as she begs her father for one more chance at happiness, how could you find a dry eye? Who could refuse her? Eartha Kitt had range. She could have played Maggie the Cat in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Shotzi Page in How to Marry a Millionaire, Mary Lee Hadley in Written on the Wind, Carolyn Bender in The Best of Everything, Ruth Edding in Love Me or Leave Me. I could go on and on. Virulent racism truncated a career that should have been as brilliant on screen as it was on the nightclub stage. Sammy Davis Jr. collapsed on set one day from exhaustion. During the film's production schedule, he was double booked, headlining a show at the Sands Casino in Las Vegas every night. He performed two shows a night there, finishing in the early hours of the morning, as Gary Fishkel reports in his biography, Gonna Do Great Things, The Life of Sammy Davis Jr. One night, his limo to Los Angeles failed to arrive, so after his late show, he stayed up for an early morning flight. The plane had mechanical difficulties and was grounded. Sammy had to charter a flight, a great personal expense, to make it to the studio. His commute back and forth took a toll, hence he collapsed on set. 
His agent tried to negotiate a night off with Sands, but the casino management held him to his contract. I'll leave you now with an excerpt from Eartha Kitt's Confessions of a Sex Kitten, published in 1989, about when she first met Sammy Davis Jr. The New Faces engagement at the Biltmore Theater was over, and so was my contract with the Macombo. The film was done, as was the next album for RCA. We moved on to San Francisco for about six weeks, where we, we became an instant hit. Then Sammy Davis Jr. came upon the scene. One of the girls of the show, Pat Washaver, came into the theater one day and was standing at the stage door entrance talking to a small black boy with pressed hair. As I ran upstairs, Pat said, Kit, this is Sammy Davis. Very nice to meet you, I said. Would you please run and get me some coffee? Since Sammy was standing in the stage doorman's area, I took him for an errand boy. A few minutes later, Sammy Davis returned with a coffee to my dressing room. He smiled as he said, here's your coffee. Pat Washaver laughed her head off when she explained who Sammy Davis Jr. was and saw me crippled with embarrassment. I had never heard of the Masterson trio, which annoyed Sammy to no end when, he got to know, when we got to know each other. Sammy got my address and phone number from Pat. I was at the Huntington Apartments just across the street from the Fairmont Hotel where the Masterson trio was playing. Sammy had his manager call on me to ask if I would come in to see the show. I went in for the late show and had the bigger surprise. Sammy Davis, with his dad and uncle, were about the greatest entertainers of this kind I had ever seen, except for the Nicholas brothers, who were my favorites, along with Bill Robinson. I adored them, especially Sammy, so I accepted the invitation to visit Sammy in his hotel suite. There I found comic books on both sides of his bed piled up level with the bed. Cameras of all sorts, records and record players were everywhere. His bedroom was cluttered with what to me looked like junk. I thought Sammy was a great entertainer, but I wondered about his intelligence. What kind of mind did he have? When the little party of the evening was over, Sammy walked me across the way to the Huntington Apartments. The next day, he called me to ask if I would have dinner with him before my show. As we walked into the restaurant, the maitre d' asked, Miss Kitt, how nice to see you. Nothing was said to Sammy. He was not recognized. When we were seated, Sammy said, I don't get it. I've been in show business since I was four years old. You've been on the scene one, only a year or two, and everybody knows who you are, and they don't know me. I pretended not to hear him and went on ordering. Sammy and I saw a lot of each other during the San Francisco run of New Faces. I thought Sammy was a lot of fun to be with, but he was also exhausting. He gave the impression that he was looking for something, but he didn't know what it was. He wanted success, yes, that was understandable, but even that was haunting him. He wanted to be recognized by all, and this was not yet the case. He was not yet able to achieve this on his own, though his talent was certainly obvious. Something bothered Sammy, and when he was with me, it seemed to bother him even more. He walked me to the theater after dinner one evening, and as we parted, he said, So long. I was crossing the boulevard when I heard Sammy yelling to me through the traffic. One of these days, I'm going to be bigger than you are. As I entered the theater, I was laughing uncontrollably at the sight of Sammy Davis Jr. stopping the traffic with his yelling. I can still see him standing on the corner of, San, of a San Francisco street yelling, one of these days I'm going to be bigger than you are. Sammy called me to ask if I would accompany him to a brunch one Sunday at a Mr. Maxwell's apartment. 
Mr. Maxwell owned a small museum of beautiful paintings, and his apartment was swarming with all sorts of objets d'art. After the brunch, we had a look around and discussed the art with Sammy clinging close behind, hanging onto every word. I thought it was very cute to see Sammy like this, in search of knowledge. Mr. Maxwell and I had a great time discussing the different artists. Sammy was silent, but listened intently. When we left, Sammy asked, how do you know so much about art? I did not bother to answer because I did not take the question seriously. The next day, Sammy came to my apartment with a pile of books under his arms. Look, look, Kit, I bought all of these books on painters. We investigated the artists. Look at this painting, isn't it great, he asked. Yes, Sammy, do you know anything about these painters, I asked back. No, I just look at the pictures, he said. Don't you think you should read the books as well as look at the paintings, Sammy? I asked him. Oh, you have to read them too? We both laughed. I had bought a Lincoln Continental, yellow with black leather upholstery. A plaque reading, especially made for Eartha Kitt, was on the inside of the door. After our shows one night, I drove Sammy to the top of the hills overlooking San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge and the, her beauty of lights. It was very romantic, but I had no romantic in- interest in Sammy. My desire was for Arthur Lowe. Being a one-man woman, no one could touch me. So there was no interest, except I thought Sammy Davis was very nice and an amusing person, even though he was exhausting to be with. There was always that nervous tension surrounding him of having someplace to go and not knowing how to get there. He was silent as we sat in my car looking at the beauty of San Francisco. I'm going to be bigger than you are one of these days, Sammy was saying softly. I'm going to learn how to drive a car and have one of my own one of these days. I'm going to know about paintings too one of these days. You wait and see. You'll have to do more than read comic books and play with toys, I said, in the same tone he was using. I took him to the Fairmount Hotel, where he sheepishly went inside. Turning halfway around, he said, I'm going to be bigger than you are one of these days. You'll have to do more than read comic books and play with toys, I singingly repeated as he drove away. Thanks very much for sticking with me for this episode. Join me next time when I talk about Marlena Dietrich and The Devil is a Woman from 1935. Thanks very much. Bye. I got an island in the Pacific.